I mean, they had to bleep out every word, you know. I mean, the guy was dropping that bonds and, and curses left, right, okay? Welcome to Beyond the Lens, presented by Diesel Films. I am Seth Shapiro. And I'm AJ Speaks. In this episode, we will welcome one of the finest storytellers in the nonfiction space, Kevin Shaw. Kevin has won multiple Emmy Awards and the Edward R. Murrow Award for Sports Reporting Excellence for a feature that he produced for the Big Ten Network. Kevin most recently worked alongside documentary legend Steve James on America to Me, which debuted at Sundance and is hailed as one of the greatest docuseries of all time. Kevin talks to us about growing up in Chicago and learning the business from his father. He tells us how his big break at ESPN almost didn't happen. And he shares what it was like working with Bob Hurley Sr. on his documentary, The Street Stops Here. It's time for Beyond the Lens from Diesel Films. Big, big show today. Someone, you know, who's definitely inspired me and has also been a mentor. We welcome Kevin Shaw to Beyond the Lens. Kevin, what's good? Hey, man. Thanks for having me. appreciate it. Good to see you, Seth. Good to see you, AJ. Nice to see you too, Kev. So, Kevin, we like to break this podcast into three acts, with the first act being your story. Where did you grow up and where did your love of storytelling come from? Well, I grew up in Chicago, Illinois. I grew up on the south side of the city, born and raised. And probably storytelling for me probably came from my late father. He worked in television. He worked at the local television station here in Chicago, WTTW, Channel 11, a public station, and then what ended up becoming the Fox affiliate, WFLD, Channel 32. He took me to the job as a young kid. So growing up, got to see the studio and see what kind of really, how television was made, you know, how the sausage was made, for lack of a better term. And I think from that, I really got the idea of, uh, I always loved sports, and I always wanted to kind of tell stories in that world per se. And I think me following sports fanatically, loved the Bears growing up. Walter Payton was my guy. So happy to see the Bears win the Super Bowl back in 85, upset that he didn't get a touchdown. But, you know, we were excited, Super Bowl shuffle. Then obviously Michael Jordan comes a couple of years later and uh, we get to revel in all that. So I was just an avid sports person at that time. It was great to be in Chicago during that time. And I think the two for me just eventually kind of collided storytelling and sports as I ended up growing up. What was the next step for you, Kev? Where'd you go to college and, and when did you explore film in college? The next step for me was Michigan State. One thing that my father had told me growing up was that if you wanted to pursue journalism or pursue television at the time, right? Because at the time, you know, you're watching a lot of sports. I wanted to be that play-by-play guy, right? I wanted to be on air be that type of person, being the one, the Keith Jackson or something like that, broadcasting, you know, your favorite teams and everything. And so my dad always said, well, if you wanted to do that, you really need to learn how to write. You really need to know how to be able to tell a story in that fashion, you know. So right before I went into college and high school, I really pursued journalism and really got into like my high school newspaper and stuff like that. Got internships with some local papers here in Chicago, like the Tribune and stuff of that nature, uh, Crane Chicago business and all that. So I was like, my dad was kind of really laying the foundation for me on all the things that I should be doing growing up and stuff. And that kind of led me to Michigan State. It, was, it actually was a school that he kind of wanted to go to when he was my age. He never went there. But I remember watching, again, 
Michigan State at that time in the 1990s, early 90s. They had just come off a Rose Bowl victory in 88 and stuff. And so I remember watching a football game between Michigan State and Notre Dame, like on ABC. And it's like Rick Meyer might have been with Notre Dame at that time. I don't remember who was with Michigan State, really. We didn't really have anybody. But the game was at Spartan Stadium, and they showed all the, the campus there. And it was green, and it was lush, and it like, for me, it like really encapsulated what college felt like it should be to me. You know what I'm saying? And so uh, I ended up getting a chance to go there, and I went and I went to Michigan State, and I studied journalism there. Went on the school paper at Michigan State, State News, and I and I was able to eventually work on all the major sports, you know, football and basketball. And you know, our football team at that time was not good in the George Perlis era. <laughs> right before Nick Saban came for a little bit. And in basketball, we had Judd Heathcote. Tom Izzo was like the assistant coach at that time. And my senior year, I went to, I was in the same senior class as Sean Respert and Eric Snow. You might know a little bit better because he played with the Sixers and ended up getting to the finals a couple of times with Allen Iverson. Come uh, on, those Kev. are my guys, man, you know. <laughs> Come on, Kev. We got to stop you. I remember him. I, I, I was – I went to see Hall, but I'm a Duke fan. So, unfortunately, that was your senior year, right? When you yeah. ran into Grand Hill and them your senior year? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, yeah, man. So, you know, we have, we have always had some tough times with Duke. Michigan State has had tough times with Duke and everything. But you got you got him back a couple years ago. Trust me. got him back, yeah, just like not, two years ago. Well, y'all not Zion out. I heard from every Spartan ever, like, yo, we took – I thought it was a championship game. But anyway, go ahead. Keep going. Yeah, no, I was just saying, yeah, that's that my man Cash is doing that. Cash is Winston in that team. But yeah, you know, just at Michigan State, I really learned how to tell a story, had an opportunity to tell a lot of great stories in those spaces. And from there, I graduated Michigan State. My first job out of school was at ESPN. And that's really how my career started. I wanted to ask you, Chicago, you know, is a special place for documentary filmmaking. Steve James creates Hoop Dreams, probably the first sports documentary that reaches acclaim. How did that influence and inspire you? Yeah, no question. What's been great for me, like if we fast forward a little bit to where I am right now in my career, you know, I've been able to actually collaborate with Steve James on some on some projects and stuff we might talk about a little bit later and everything. So that's been fascinating for me to end up developing that relationship with him. But certainly, yeah, Hoop Dreams, I think it's like 1994, 1995. It's like actually one of the first movies I ended up taking my wife to, uh, you know, at the time. So I got first date or what have you. <laughs> it was like Hoop Dreams. And I remember an old friend of mine told me, man, you got to check out this movie, you know, with these kids from Chicago. And they got Isaiah Thomas in there and, and, and they're trying to get into the NBA. He was just like, love it, you know. And of course, yeah, I mean, I loved it. It was an amazing piece of work. And certainly I think that that project and that film influenced me in some type of way in regards to what type of storyteller I wanted to be and the kind of stories that I wanted to tell as well. You know, just these, not only these stories about the athletic competition that goes on at that young age, but these heartfelt stories, slice of life that everybody can really relate to the things that happen outside of the court or away from the field 
that are impacting young men and young families and what have you. Those are the things that really touch me and is the reason why Hoop Dreams is so well regarded because everybody can relate to the things that the people are going through in that story. So that certainly had an influence on me and I always wanted to try to elevate my game and try to tell stories in that same kind of light. Kev, for me, it was Roy Firestone. He was that person that I wanted to be like. And you talked about, you know, you mentioned a couple of people, but when did that switch come and you realize, hey, I'm going to be behind the scenes and not on camera. And then what was that transition like for you when you were at ESPN? It was probably that situation of graduating and having an opportunity to go to ESPN. I remember doing a, a lot of the job search right before I graduated. I had an opportunity, like two opportunities. One, to work like a junior level line producer at a, a local station in Detroit. And then this opportunity at ESPN came about, you know, I went to a job fair, they would like do a interview and all that, and just kind of snowballed one thing onto the other. From that opportunity, I said, this is it, you know, this is the chance to really dive in and try to learn about, you know, it's kind of a dream job, probably for a lot of people that are into sports television. They probably dream of like being able to go to Bristol, Connecticut and learn about the craft there. So I felt just like privileged and honored and lucky to, to be one of those people. You know, it was a six month trial, basically at first, you know, you have, you are a temporary production assistant there. So you're not even guaranteed a job after the six months. So you're kind of like thrown into this world of uber competitiveness right from the jump, which you're also learning what makes great television program. You're learning about what great shots are and how to identify them. And then you're starting to learn about just that early craft of how to tell short stories in that sense. And I remember being there very early on and I watched some of the associate producers and the feature producers there, and they would be walking into the edit suites and they'd have 30, 40 tapes going in to do these pieces and everything. I'm like, man, why do they need all those tapes? You know, not realizing that each one of those tapes had one or two shots, specific shots that they were going to use in, in their piece and everything. So you learn all that, you know, you start to identify, you're learning how to find those things on your own. And I had a great friend and mentor, Tom Roach, who it was just like, he loved just finding all the little pieces, finding all the great close-up tight ISOs of players. Jordan at that time was, he had retired, but was coming coming back. So it's the second three-peak for the Bulls. And so we like built all these clip reels of just the best Jordan shots, things that we would grab from NBA entertainment shows and everything, the film that they would shoot. We just would be in love with that stuff, you know, NFL films footage. We'd be in love with it. We would know who the cameramen are and all that, you know, like Donnie Marks. We knew exactly who he was and what kind of shots that guy would provide and everything. So it's really like this ultimate learning opportunity. You know, you're kind of like in a grad school, I guess, for, for television production and you're learning from the top. So that was an opportunity that I just couldn't pass up. And that was when I decided like, yeah, man, this the being behind the scenes is fine. I don't, I didn't really miss trying to uh, go after that, trying to be the next Keith Jackson or whatever it was that I had thought about when I was growing up. Did you have a big break at ESPN or was there something that happened that sort of elevated your career? Well, let's talk about like the moment that I thought I was going to get knocked out of there. All right. Fired. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it's a temporary position. 
And so everybody's always fighting for these the prime spots. And at that point, that time, you're a production assistant. You are producing highlights for Sports Center, and you want to always have the top highlight, the top game that night. So if it's a championship game or if it's a playoff game, you want to have that. Or at the time, it was like a Monday night football game, like having a Monday night football game as a production assistant at ESPN was a really big deal. And so there was a lot that was involved in that. And a very quick turnaround too. You know, right when the game was over, your highlight was airing. So a lot of stress involved in in regards to getting the highlight done. And so long story short, I had a major error on my Monday Night Football highlight. Basically the shot sheets, which are the dialogue description of what are the plays that you have cut for the anchor so that they can just read the shot sheet because they have not seen the highlight before they go on air live. You know, they're, they're seeing it for the first time. So your shot sheet has got to be accurate. So I have four shot sheets and the talent, which I believe was Dan Patrick, he only got three of those four shot sheets. And so as he's reading my highlight, I forget who it was against. I think it was like Cleveland and Cleveland and maybe Pittsburgh or something like that. At that time, he didn't know where he was like, halfway through the highlight and immediately as he's starting to stumble everybody turns and looks at you in the in the in, <laughs> in the highlight room and you're like oh shit <laughs> and i run back into the edit room and i'm like there is sheet number four sitting there on the on the table you know and i'm like oh man well i'm i'm done you know like I, this was like around right around my six month time. And I'm thinking I'm done. You know, I made this major mistake and uh, I'll be going back home. <laughs> and so I ended up having my, uh, my little PPR, whatever my, my review with the coordinating producer who's overseeing you. And yeah, they brought it up, but luckily I had built up enough good work that they had let that slide, you know, because I had seen other people make those kind of mistakes and they were gone. And so I was just like, man, I really hope it's not the thing that just puts me out. Luckily, it wasn't. I had built up enough good work to, uh, to, to make it through. From there on, man, it was really about me trying to separate myself from everybody else that was there because there was, like I mentioned, the, the competition was so vast and so great. Everybody's vying for all the, the key jobs and they want to get landed onto a specific studio show, NFL Countdown, Baseball Tonight. At the time, NBA Tonight was like a studio show that was very popular there. So you wanted to be on one of these specialty sports and then be able to go out and do features and stuff. So I wasn't getting a lot of opportunities to do anything, man. So I ended up just like making my own opportunities. I remember cutting like a music video on my own with Allen Iverson, who was at Georgetown, and Stefan Marbury, who was at Georgia Tech. And they only played each other like once or twice during this time frame. But the matchup between those two was just electric. You know, they were they were the jam. Electric. Electric. I remember wearing the the Jordans, you know, wearing the Concords. You know, there was no better look at that point. So I remember cutting a music video based on those two guys to like this Jay-Z cut, which uh, it would never air. But it was more of just like to show people that I could do this kind of thing. And so I showed that to different producers and I think it caught people's eye. And then I remember cutting like another little short feature based on the opening night of the NBA season that year. That's something again that I did on my own, you know, and one of the producers ended up airing it and he really liked it. And I think at that point, people started to notice that, you know, I had a talent to like tell feature stories. Ended up getting placed on the NBA Tonight Show 
for like two years, did that awesome opportunity, told some features, got to actually get out of Bristol and go out and do stories and go to events. I went to the NBA All-Star Game the year that was Michael's last year in, in the garden at New York, you know, and that was Kobe, maybe his second or third year, what have you. So those two were going at it. So that was great. Ended up getting, after that, going on to the NFL and working on the NFL Countdown Show and went to Super Bowls and stuff like that and did. And that was a whole thing. Every week you're out, every week at a different city doing a story. And so that was really then I'm in the craft of, of telling stories for every day at ESPN. Were you at NBA Tonight with my man Jason Jackson? Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. Jason Jackson. Jay Jackson. That's funny, man. Yeah. yeah. And they love to talk Fred Carter. He loves to tell stories about Fred Carter. Fred Carter. Exactly. That's my man. <laughs> Andre Aldridge. Oh, yeah. yeah. We're going back. <laughs> yeah. Good times. So I, I may be out of sequence here, but I read about you and I want to ask you, who is Stanley Nelson and what impact has he made on your life? Stanley Nelson, Firelight Media. He is one of the prime documentary filmmakers going on today. And he, he's made an impact from afar for me because I have really watched a lot of his work and a lot of his craft. I mean, he doesn't do sports documentaries, although he did do the, the Michael Vick doc recently. But Stanley, he's just a master. You know, he's a master of what he does. He's great in regards to archival footage and great in terms of journalism and in terms of storytelling, in terms of really cracking the, the nut in regards to digging down deeper and not just giving you the surface level of an issue or a theme or what have you. If you watch any of his movies about the Black Panthers, Michael Vick, he's got a movie that's coming out with uh, another great documentarian that I admire, uh, Marco Williams, about the uh, Tulsa race riots in 1921. So he, he's really somebody that if I could do one or two movies as well as he does them, I'd be thrilled. I'd be good. I'd be on cloud nine. You know what I mean? Uh, he, he, he's that much of a treasure for sure. So you've had the opportunity now to work with Steve James. How did that come about? And what would you say is the one thing that you've learned from him that you know, you've taken with you and taken into your career? So Steve, I'm trying to think back. Steve, we met, I met Steve a little bit after, or around the time of the Street Stops here, the first documentary that I was able to direct. And the production company out that we did that for, Teamworks Media, we like reached out to Steve and Gordon Quinn to kind of get a quote, you know, for our marketing materials. And both those guys were a part of our Templin Films here in Chicago, which is like a legendary documentary production house. They both were very willing to give, to watch the movie and to give us a little quote for, for our marketing materials, for like our, our one sheet and all that, our DVD and stuff. That's how I kind of got on Steve James' radar, I would say. I ended up moving back to Chicago at this time. And he was working on a movie called The Interrupters, which was about gun violence here in Chicago. And I just cold email, emailed him and I said, hey, man, I would love to work with you in some capacity because I love your work, et cetera, et cetera. And he got back to me. He emailed me back and he said, I appreciate it. We're pretty much done with The Interrupters right now. But if I have anything else down the road, you know, it'd be great to collaborate with you on something. And he remembered the street stops here and everything like that. I ended up doing another film for ESPN after the Street Ops here called Goose, 
which is about Reese Goose Tatum, who's the first Harlem Globetrotter. Steve was working on a potential narrative project about Goose Tatum. He asked to see my film. So he came over to my house and we talked for a little bit and I gave him a DVD and we kind of, you know, reconnected in that sense. And then a little bit after that, I don't think anything happened with his project. He talked about he has this big, epic kind of miniseries he's trying to do, looking at race and education in the hometown that he lives in, Oak Park, Illinois, which is literally kitty corner to Chicago. And Oak Park is like a very diverse suburb, a very progressive suburb. Uh, it has a lot of resources for its public high school, yet it has like this massive achievement gap there. So it's like, how, how does this place have that kind of thing? So he was establishing a team of filmmakers to kind of dive into the school and follow 10 or 12 different students over the course of an entire school year. And just to create this portrait of what life in this school is like, what life in Oak Park is like, and in essence, what life in America is like. And so that's how, you know, Steve and I kind of connected through the course of that project, American and Me, which we did back in 2016, ended up being on Stars in 2018, and you know, premiered at Sundance and got a lot of great accolades. What was, was really an awesome opportunity to see somebody like him here. You know, we mentioned Who Dreams, a movie that we all really admire. And then to be working with the guy who created that, the best thing about it is that you realize that Steve doesn't have any ego to him. He's not sitting there like, oh, I'm the guy that made Who Dreams, you know, get out of my way. I'm going to do this or that. He's not like that at all. If anything, he didn't want people to mention it. He's got a great sense of humor. And that's probably the biggest thing that I've learned from him and working with him. Because in what we do in documentary, you need to be able to establish relationships with people. You need to be able to make people comfortable around you. And uh, you need to be able to gain people's trust. You're not going to be able to gain anybody's trust if you're being an asshole to them or they don't like you, you know. So you really need to be able to reach people on a human level, be able to connect with them. And one way he does that is by having a sense of humor. So I think I learned that, number one, from him is to be light, caring, be a good listener, have a couple jokes in your back pocket, have some laughs and fun. And that's the way you can be able to start to build relationships with people that you're following in in a documentary film that you're that you're doing. That was good advice, Kev. And it's funny because you mentioned him, you mentioned your late father, but I could only think that some of that advice he probably gave you kind of comes full circle when you work on projects now. Is that correct? For sure, for sure. You know, my dad was the same way. My dad definitely was somebody that he listened to people. He had to deal with egos in the news business and in, in television. And my dad was, when he worked in television, he was an engineer, so he built control rooms and he fixed television cameras. And when things broke, he was the guy that had to fix them. And a lot of times he had people telling him how to do it. You know, oh, you need to do it like this. You need to do it like that. You know, and say, okay, I'll do it like this. I'll do it like that. It ain't going to work, but I'll do it like this. I'll do it like that. And what happened? It didn't work, you know. 
And so then the person would come back around, oh, you know what, okay, well, maybe we should try it your way. Like, yeah, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll try it that way, you know, get it going. And yeah, we ended up working, you know what I mean? So <laughs> you're like, he, he had a, he, you know, I, I'm still learning from that, okay? Because a lot of times I'm not like that. I'll be the other way. Like, Man, come on, I'm wasting my time here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've seen that before, we've seen that before. <laughs> so yeah, it all it all comes full circle, you know, man. We gotta treat each other with, with decency and respect, and that's the number one thing in, in anything that we do, whether we're doing our work or just in our daily lives. So and, and especially in the time that we're living now, how do we put a smile on our face? How do we keep our sense of humor and keep our even keel? It's important things to continue to, to kind of remind yourselves about. So I think having those two examples has helped me along the way. My last question was about America to me and working on that project, obviously hailed as one of the great docuseries of all time. What was it like working on that project? And my other question is when you have such a pure verite film, are you allowed to interact with the kids at all? And can you set up scenes again? For example, can you ride down the street, you know, on your bike one more time? We missed that shot. Are you allowed to do that? <laughs> well, I try not to do that stuff. Like, I try to stay pure. I know, like, I know. You know, hey, if I missed it, I missed it, you know. I won't say that it, that we don't do that from time to time. Sure. Everybody, I think every documentary filmmaker has done that from time to time. And if they're telling you that they haven't, then they're lying. <laughs> You know, it happens. Exactly. I, but, I wanted to know pertaining to America to me and how serious that was. Yeah, I mean, but America to me was very serious. You know, we, we, we definitely relied on our on our participants to kind of guide us through what was going on in their lives. You really had to have a strong connection to the people that you were following. I, I basically, we had four directors, myself, Steve, Bing Lu. Rebecca Parrish, we all had about three students each. So we had three families that we then had to connect with too that were following over the course of that whole school year. And then there might be teachers that you're following too. And so ended up building strong relationships with all the families that I followed to, to this day. One of the kids that I was following, Sean, he was going through a lot of stuff in his life and it was probably not the best time for him to have a camera following him. And so that was really hard to kind of navigate in regards to when to film and when not to film. If I didn't want to sit there and kind of invade their privacy and the family's privacy, because I had that, I did uh, develop a relationship with them. And I think that's one thing that is probably different when you're making a, a project like that in comparison to like things that we do for ESPN or, or sports television journalism. Journalism, you're really taught to be kind of objective and you're not supposed to make friends with your the people that you're interviewing and all that kind of stuff. And it's just really impossible to do that when you're doing these long form projects. It's better to try to make friends with, with the people that you're, you're following because you are walking alongside them and you're trying to create an empathetic portrait of them. You know, so it's like, I don't know how you don't get connected to somebody in that way if you're not trying to do that kind of work. You know, like I was mentioning, I had difficulty with, with Keyshawn at times and with his family, but we all worked through it and we were able to maintain respect 
and love and privacy and be able to still tell his story and his family's story with dignity and everything. And at the end of the day, I think everybody was really proud of having participated in the project, proud of the dialogue that it inspired. You know, I think one of the great things about the project is beyond the fact that it was on a, a national platform, it was in thousands of schools across the nation, like it's part of the impact campaign. So like thousands of students were then able to to watch American Me and kind of see themselves on screen and educators were able to see themselves on screen and see some of the same problems that they're dealing with in their school district that was that was there in Oak Park and really begin to possibly have some dialogue that could help create some meaningful change that would re result in some positive movements in, in education, you know? So I, I think that's kind of like the greatest thing that I take from that whole experience, knowing that uh, this was something that really had some measurable impact and still continues on to this day. Definitely an amazing docu-series. Everyone should check it out. We're going to enter into our second act where we focus on your documentary debut in 2010. The street stops here. You follow the St. Anthony High School basketball team for their 2008 season and their Hall of Fame coach, Bob Hurley Sr. This was like Last Chance You before Last Chance You on Netflix. And obviously Last Chance You is junior college story, but this really felt like a last chance for a lot of these kids. How did you get involved with the street stops here? How did the documentary come together? So one of the producers on the uh, project, Krista Sapanaro, she was a producer that uh, and colleague that I worked with at ESPN. She had went freelance like myself and had gotten connected with the production company Teamworks Media in Chicago, Illinois. And their producers, Mike Sear and Jay Sharman, had been working with one of the former players and coaches, Rashawn Burno, who was a Hurley disciple, played under Bob Hurley back in the day and uh, was coaching at the time, I think at the Paul, when Jay and Mike had been talking to him. And Rashawn had always said, man, you got to try to do a documentary on my coach, you know, on Bob Hurley. And obviously everybody kind of knew who he was already. Uh, there was a, a book written by uh, the Woj bomb himself, Adrian Wojnowski, a miracle at St. Anthony that looked at probably three or four years prior to when we filmed at St. Anthony. So he was fairly well known. And so, you know, it was really the Teamworks media team that negotiated the access with, with Bob Hurley and, and St. Anthony and Sister Allen and Bob Hurley's wife, all that stuff. And Krista kind of reached out to me at the time. I was doing freelance work. I was doing show opens for, for ESPN. Sunday night football was what they had at the time. And we were, we were creating some really cool content. But I was looking to do a, a bigger project. And it just kind of all worked out, the timing of everything. Said, yeah, I have this project. I think it would be great for you to, to be a part of. And I was like, yeah, let's, let's do it. You know, ended up meeting uh, Coach Hurley. And the rest, rest was kind of history from there. As you start to dig in and tell this story, at what point do you realize that this is no longer just a basketball story, but a much more bigger life story and about the school almost closing down? When does that all kind of hit you and realize like, okay, we got to look at this for more than just talking about Bob Hurley Sr.? I think actually kind of from early on, we always knew that that was the thread with St. Anthony. That was something that was kind of part of their 
legacy, this idea that they charge less than what it really costs to educate a child or student there. So they were always at this deficit. They were always had this uh, this need to raise extra money so that they could keep the doors open and everything. And so that was something that we knew would be something that we had to take stock of very, very early on. I don't think we really realized that the school truly might close until, you know, we got deeper into the year and we realized, yeah, they're not making their fundraising numbers at all. They're still feeling the effects of of 9-11 at that time and the fundraising was off. So it really wasn't until that late part of the school year where we saw yeah, they're they're going to have some some true issues here in regards to trying to keep the doors the doors open this time. I wanted to ask, what was it like working with Coach Hurley? Obviously, he's a hardcore general. What was it like working with Coach? And did he ever tell you to turn the cameras off or get out of his face? Never saw Coach Hurley. He never told us to, to take the, to turn the cameras off. What? Here's the biggest thing that we saw with Coach Hurley. Before I joined the project, they had Teamworks, the production company, they had produced a trailer. You know, obviously you're producing trailers to try to raise money and, and garner interest and everything. And so during this trailer, when they filmed with Coach Hurley, I mean, they had to bleep out every word, you know. I mean, the guy was dropping that bombs and, and curses left, right, okay? And so I think once he saw that trailer and he saw himself, he was like, holy, shit, I, I, I got to change this up. <laughs> I cannot be as, as crazy as I, as I am and, and using such language all the time if the cameras are around, you know. So at the very beginning of the shoot, he definitely was very aware of, of us being there and toned down on his language. But what you did see in contrast to that was his sarcasm. And the way that he was still able to kind of really dig into the kids and stuff and into the young men with just layers and layers of sarcasm, which became, I think, even better than him just dropping the F-bombs and all that. Because I think for some people, that kind of really being harsh language, using that all the time, it's going to rub people the wrong way and not make this guy, not to say we're trying to make him sympathetic or empathetic, but he just won't have the room on his side, you know? when you're making it, when you're watching the film and everything. So he was, he was cautious in the beginning. It started to, to slip a little bit as we got farther down in the road. And obviously like one of the key moments of the movie is when he loses his temper and he, <laughs> he tells the other coach to go look at the scoreboard and stuff like that. That's, that is just quintessential Hurley at that moment. You know, he's not caring about us. He just is him and his element. And, and from then on, he was really in his element and did not tell us to, to turn off the cameras at all. We were just in there. Uh, I will say there was one time, probably early mid-season, when uh, and it's a game that's not in the movie at all. He did lock the locker room door so that we couldn't get in to the locker room, and he like blistered his team. And they ended up winning this game. They still blew the team out by like 40, 50 points. But at this point in the season, it was early on. He didn't probably didn't know us that well, and, he, and they ended up locking the door. And so I remember saying, okay, well, we can fight fire with fire and we have to have one of our cameras in there before the game is over, you know? And so that's what we did. We like to, we had one of our cameras in the locker room before the game was over. 
And it was like, we, you know, we're kind of staking our claim there. So, you know, I never ended up really having a conversation to kind of talk about parameters of things as the year was going on. It was like this little cat and mouse that we would play, but it was all in but, fun, you know? Yeah. You still have the audio, though. You still have the audio, right? Still had audio, yeah, He's yeah. mic'd up, yeah. Yeah, it's actually that's funny. I was at a seminar, uh, as a seminar or something with Steve James, and there's a scene in Hoop Streams where they didn't get the shot in the locker room, but they had the audio, and he went back and just filmed the door, played the audio with the door, and it was a magnificent scene. So there you go. Yeah, that, that was you know. There's way there's ways to get around that. Totally, totally. Kev, one thing I love about documentaries, especially sports documentaries, is I find myself cheering for the kids in the documentary, right? And so I had seen this a while, Red Woj's book, but forgot about it and we rewatched it for this doc, for this, for this podcast. And so I found myself watching Gio and Trayvon and just seeing how they were so giving in their story. And their stories weren't the average story. How did you pick which kids you wanted to work with? How did you get them to be so forthcoming and trust you? Because it's a trust issue. Or maybe that's what you were talking about earlier, building that relationship. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really it. You know, I, I think at that time in my life, I might not have been able to articulate it as well as I did right now. But it really was just trying to relate to those young men as best as I could. You know, obviously, I have many years ahead of them. But I, I think relating to their, their father, George, at that time, too, was key. George was awesome. He was a great, great individual. And being able to be cool with him probably gave Gio and Trayvon and Mike the, the signal that this dude is all right, you know. Mm-hmm. And then also, I think being around all the time, like we were around all the time. And I think when people see that you're that committed to them and to their story that you're around all the time, even at times where you think it's just for them, they think it's mundane. That shows them something that you care about, them, that you care about. Them. You, you care about the story that you're trying to tell. And you care about them as, as people and that you're not just trying to parachute into their life and, and get the story and get out, you know, like you, you really care about them still, you know, and so. Like it's it's awesome to see those guys right now what they're doing. Like like Mike has made a career for himself in Puerto Rico as a professional basketball player, and Trayvon is is coaching. Gio's the same, and so it's great to see those guys doing things today. But still be able to like reach out to them right now with Twitter. That's the easiest way to text them or whatever. The easiest way to contact, and they'll reach reach back out to you. You know, so that means that that time that you spent with them meant something that's really cool to see it's funny i was going to bring that up in a little bit but all of those guys became coaches like trayvon's at uh st bonaventures geo's at a high school the hurley brothers when you filmed with them they weren't quite at where they are now but one's at arizona state one's at uconn it's amazing the impact that bob hurley senior and rashad Berno you talked about he just got with the northern illinois (laughs) job so like all these, he's had this impact on all of these young men, even the ones that were in the documentary or the ones that were talking about them. So I thought that was interesting when I started to go back and look, I'm like, all these kids are coaches now. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a great coaching tree, but beyond the coaching tree, he's got a great, I would say life tree because there's like hundreds of young men that we don't know of that he has impacted, you know, that are doing great things in their lives that are great family men. They have jobs, they have careers, and they might not have had those things if they didn't 
if Bob Hurley didn't touch him, you know, if Bob Hurley didn't give him, give them uh, some words of wisdom when they, when they were playing basketball. Uh, so uh, I truly believe that what Bob has done over his time has saved lives, has inspired lives, and he's one of a kind. At the time, I know you were living in Chicago. What was the production plan for the movie? Did you move to Jersey City, you know, for the whole season, or did you pick and choose spots? Talk to me about the production plan, how many cameras, and how that all came together. So at the time, I actually was still living in New Jersey. So that gave me the opportunity to actually do the film. You know, like I don't think there was any way that I could have, I would have had to have moved there for that time frame to actually produce and, and direct the film. So I was still living in Jersey. I lived in Union City, which is right, right next to Jersey City. So 10 minute drive to St. Anthony every day or what have you. And it was a local shoot for me. We had basically, we had one main camera. Dane Lowing was our, was our DP. And man, we were shooting on the Veracam at that point in time. And I started to shoot a little bit during this time frame in my career. And we had a Panasonic DVX-100A, which at the time was one of the newer portable cameras that you could kind of hold in your, you know, kind of like this, what have you. And, and that was like the first, the first 24P camera. Sorry to interrupt Exactly. About to say, yeah. yep, yeah, it was one of the yeah. first 24P cameras and it matched well with the Veracam. So I would be in a B camera. And some days we would bring in Daniel Carter, who is a VP. He's living in New York right now. He actually just filmed on the uh, movie Boy State, if you ever saw that, which was on Apple TV. So he's out there doing a lot of great documentary work. And Daniel Carter's the guy who shot the, the uh, opening scene in the movie where uh, Hurley is lightning to the team. <laughs> he shot that. And it's great. It was a story that we weren't, we weren't planning to go to every practice, you know, cover them with our main camera. So there were some days where, you know, maybe I would just go or maybe Daniel would just go. And that was a day where like Daniel was the only guy that went that day. He ended up capturing that scene. And I remember him telling me too, it was in the edit. He told me, he was like, you know, you should look at this day that I filmed. He really got at the team right before the St. Pat's game. And, uh, you know, it was just like this gold that was just sitting there in our laps, you know? So, so yeah, we shot, we shot on those three, those three cameras, you know, probably a mask, you know, the Vera cam was a tape based camera. So we probably had about a hundred tapes or so, 30 minute tapes. And then I don't know how much digital video we, we recorded during that time on those other two cameras. I, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. But we filmed a lot. We filmed too much, probably. <laughs> I was young at that point. I was afraid to miss anything, you know. So I, I ended up shooting a lot of stuff. And that's why I think we filmed almost every practice. Probably didn't need to film every practice, but it did. But I'm like, hey, I got the moment that Daniel Carter shot. That I just mentioned was ended up being the opening part of the scene uh, of the movie. And, and was a awesome look into the character of, of Bob Hurley and how he... Some people say manipulates, other people say motivates. I'll let you be the judge. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. So I noticed you had some heavy hitting coaches in the interviews that you interviewed. Coach K, Roy Williams, Coach Wooten. 
How did those interviews come about? Did you get them on the same trip with Coach K and Roy Williams? Talk to us about that process. So the North Carolina shoots we did at the same time. I, I just flew out. We ended up uh, hiring a DP in North Carolina to film those two interviews. But, you know, obviously Bob Hurley is well-known in the world of basketball. He's just not a high school basketball coach. He's in the Basketball Hall of Fame for a reason. And obviously he has that connection with his son at Duke, you know, with Bobby Hurley having played there. So Coach K loves the Hurleys. And Roy Williams knows him, obviously just being in the same coaching realm. And he, he has recruited some of Bob Hurley's players over the years. And Coach Wooten is probably just as well-known as a great high school basketball coach in the uh, Hall of Fame as well also. So it's like to be able to, to put into context, I think, just the impact that Bob Hurley has had on the world of basketball, it was great to have those voices be the ones to kind of tell the audience, yeah. This is Bob Hurley. This is what he's meant to the world of basketball and why. I wanted to ask, when you started the film, was it always slated to go to PBS or was there some question where it was going to go? And did the school want to get behind it because they were having some fundraising issues and to provide more exposure to the programs of the school? What was kind of the overall goal of the film at the beginning? I think overall at the beginning, we wanted to get to the to the highest possible audience you know i'll be honest honest and candid initially we were going with espn and espn was interested in everything and i don't know everything that happened in the conversations with them one of the things that i regret as a director is like one of this like my first film and i wasn't as i don't think i felt as empowered as i should have with the production team with the producers and being a part of some of those conversations and the producers, you know, we had an agent with CAA, and I kind of left it all up to them to like, okay, they're going to figure out where, where the home is. And so initially it didn't go with ESPN. Like they ended up going, there was another documentary film in that space. I don't even remember the name of the documentary, but it was like a documentary that dealt with a, a, a woman who was coaching a high school basketball team. And it was kind of like a timing thing. ESPN ended up going with that film instead of ours at the time. And so, you know, we, we were disappointed, but we we're like, all right, well, what can we do to kind of preserve what we have, you know, and be able to have a broadcast that's not interrupted by commercials and something that is as close to the theatrical experience as we could do. And so that was PBS, you know, and that was PBS nationally. And we're able to to get it on nationally in that in that respect because it preserved those things that I just mentioned, and so then ended up ends up in like in the in the second window of rights that is granted to you to your pr uh, production company once your rights have expired on PBS, be able to take it somewhere else as well. So prior to that, we had gotten it on Netflix. Also, we had gotten it on iTunes. So we were on these platforms like before it was like the thing to do, you know, like we were on Netflix, we were on iTunes and it was for short windows, but we were on there for like six months each. And it was, it was great. You could watch the film in that respect too. You could watch it on those platforms. You could then watch it on PBS. And then in the next window, right, we ended up getting on ESPN. And I remember we ended up repackaging some stuff 
where they did some interviews. Jay Williams did some interviews with the Hurley family, with Bob and Danny and, and, and Bobby. And, you know, had a nice little window run on, on ESPN for a time mm-hmm. being, too. So, yeah, you know, I, I think looking back on it, would I have loved to have been a little bit more into some of the distribution of, of the project, for sure. But, you know, that's a whole nother monster, too, <laughs> distributing yeah. your work. And that's like a full-time job also. You know, I'm happy with how everything ended up. Absolutely. Yeah. It's one of those things where you live and learn, right, Kev? And when you do it again, you go back, you say, okay, I'm not going to do this again. I'm going to take from that and and do it this way. Totally. When you go back and look at this documentary, is this one of those where you think about, man, could we ever revisit some of these kids' stories? Like, I I watch some of these. I'm like, man, I wonder where they are now. So I go Google them. I'm like, I wonder if you could ever revisit. As a filmmaker, do you ever just say, hey, you want to think back? Or is it like, I build it, it's done, I move on? I mean, I love those guys. I love everybody that's in the movie and everything. Certainly a lot has happened uh, with St. Anthony. You know, it doesn't exist anymore. You know, eventually finally closed. I think one of the things with with this project is that uh, despite it being on these platforms that we just mentioned and everything, some of its notoriety is not as large as I wish it would have been. Because if it was, I don't think Showtime would have even wanted to do a their own Hurley piece that they ended up doing like three years ago or four years ago that was primarily for the for the internet for the web or what have you you know that that was like a, the last year of Bob Hurley at St Anthony I think it was the year right before it closed or the year of it closing you know if our if our movie had more notoriety there wouldn't have been any need to do that project because it basically is the same story. So in that respect, I wish more people had more access to it and more awareness of it. The more awareness of it then might generate that interest in knowing where Mike is, where Gio is and Trayvon is, you know, like I, I feel like it's probably really niche interest for people. If you really, really love the film and are really a diehard St. Anthony person, you want to know what's going on with everybody, you might want to know but for me i feel like we had our moment in time with them we told a great story during that moment in time and something to be cherished especially now because you know it doesn't exist anymore unfortunately you know saint anthony is not there i think of all the trophies that were at uh in that building where are they now i don't even know where they are you know like bob hurley was not the type to keep stuff of his own like he didn't have a big trophy room in his place you know what i mean like he he wanted to keep them at the school he didn't want to deal with them so i don't even know where that stuff is you know what i mean uh, so that's kind of the stuff that i that i think about and man, who knows maybe that might be worth a revisit for sure but i definitely i will say this when people look at bob hurley and they think about his legacy i would hope that they would turn to the street stops here and i hope it would be available somewhere so that people can turn to it because it's not really available right now anywhere, you know. And I know that we have had some conversations a little bit about trying to get it back out there into the public space so that people could could see it beyond a bootleg YouTube if that exists, YouTube link. But I don't know, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I'm kind of. I think know. one of the goals of this podcast is hopefully to shine a light on these films and films that are must see in the community of sports documentaries. So I know I had one question, the film, they beat St. Pat's in the semifinal game. 
which was their bitter rival and a crescendo. How was the decision made? You kind of crescendo with that game and you didn't really show the state championship game. How was that decision made to kind of move, not move past the championship game, but not show it as in-depth as the St. Pat's game? Yeah, I, I, it's pretty easy to me. It felt redundant, you know? Like for me, it was like St. Pat's was the major rival of, of St. Anthony. There was an earlier cut of the movie where we had put the St. Anthony losing the St. Pat's, Pat's the year before because they lost the St. Pat's the year before in the championship. And that was kind of like the emphasis for this this next year run for them to go undefeated and then try to meet St. Patrick's again and beat them. We ended up tossing that. But it was all about St. Pat's for me. And it was all about that for, the, for that team, too. They knew that if they beat St. Pat's, they were going to win. You know, they were going to win it all. And, yeah, the rest of it just kind of felt redundant to me. It's like I, don't, I didn't want to dive into another – you know, two and a half, three minute scene of them just beating up on whoever they were beating up in, in, in the championship. It's like, no, uh, they win, you know, they won it. And it just felt like a good, a good montage moment to kind of just bundle that all together, take that crescendo of winning, of beating St. Pat's and, and ride out into the sunset. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, having lived in Jersey, when that thing started to, Boyle, like, well, Kevin Boyle, but when he got there and started building that with that Robert, it really wasn't about the players. It was about the coaches that were beefing. Because I went to Seton Hall, all the players used to come and see Shaheen Holloway. They all, they were all friends. It wasn't anything that was like a player thing. That was strictly, and I thought you did a good job even getting Kevin to do the interview and then telling that part of the story the way you did. For me, being a part of it or just seeing it, not even being a part of seeing it, was like, okay, that was that's what it was about. Yeah, had to get Kevin, man. And I'll tell you, it was funny, too. When we did the Kevin Boyle interview, we're in a St. Pat's gym, and we're just walking through there. And I'm hearing, I forget who told me, but I'm hearing, oh, you know, this St. Anthony documentary, they're, they're in here to spy on us, you know? They're going to be filming our plays and everything, you know what I mean? It was like yeah, that. Yeah. You know, it was, it was, it was real. Like that. Yeah, you're the, uh, yeah. I, I'm glad I'm glad Kevin Boyle sat down with us and and was able to give him a little bit of, of shine and perspective as to what the rivalry was all about. And of course, you know, they ended up getting their own documentary not too long after ours, you know, which was done by I think Mark Levin. So it all worked out. <laughs> they got their own their own uh, 15 minutes of fame. A great film uh, that everyone should see. The Street Stop Here, a portrait of Bob Hurley Sr. We'll link to it in the description. And, you know, I think everyone should check that out. All right, we're going to enter into our third act, which are some quick hitters. Seminal moment of your career. You don't have to get too deep, but seminal moment of your career. Oh, man. You should have prepped me on this stuff, man. I don't know, dude. <laughs> what, what comes so, to you? Seminal moment of my career. Um, you know what? I'm a film lover. I've always wanted to be at Sundance and have a project at Sundance, and we had America to Me at Sundance. So being there and being part of that whole experience was 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 a seminal moment for me so far. Yeah. All right, so we're on video, we're on audio with this podcast, but you have an Arsenal shirt on. You said that you went, you were from Chicago. I need you to rank your teams, favorite sporting teams, and rank them for me one to four or whatever it is. 
Whoo-wee. Famous sporting teams. Okay. Well, I got to go Michigan State, okay? Because I went to Michigan State, so I got to do Michigan State hoops first. That's like my, my pride and joy. Love Michigan State hoops. From there, I'm a Chicago guy. I would do the, do the Bulls. I would do the Bears. I like hockey, man. So I like the Blackhawks, you know. And then I like soccer. I do like the Premier League. I like Arsenal. I watch my, my cousin is a Chelsea fan. So we go at it. And uh, I was, I've been watching Arsenal back in the day since the Dennis Bergkamp and Thierry Henry after that and stuff. And so they've, they've been my team. And, and, you know, when you become, when you're American and you pick a soccer team, you got to kind of stick with them. You can't be jumping back and forth. You can't be like, oh, Man City is the best now. So I'm going to be a Man City supporter now. You'll get laughed out. You're like, no, you're not. You don't know anything about football. You don't know anything about soccer. So <laughs> Arsenal's not doing that well right now, but I got to stick with them. So there you go. There you go. As a true documentarian, what is your opinion on athlete-produced documentaries that we're starting to see? Man, I was just talking to a good friend of mine about this, and it's really – this is really where the space is headed towards. I'm not a great fan of it because I do feel like if an athlete has some stories that he doesn't want to, he or she don't want to talk about and they are paying for the project, then they don't have to talk about it. They don't have to broach it. And so that I feel is not good and does not produce the most authentic storytelling right there. This is already a loaded question, so I'm going to try to keep it condensed. But what advice do you give to black and brown filmmakers that are trying to make it up? Yeah, man. It's a good time to be a black and brown filmmaker because they're looking for us out there. There's no doubt. And I think I want to end the stereotype of that, that we're not out here, that we don't exist. Because we do exist. You know, there's, there's plenty of us out here. We just haven't gotten the opportunities to shine tell stories. So a lot of it is going to be on you. You're going to have to figure out how to get your craft out into the world. So it's just like when I was at ESPN and, you know, I'm that kept production assistant at that point in time, wanting to work on one of these other studio shows, but getting passed over by, by my peers that I believe are not as talented as me, don't see the world the same way that I do, don't know how to produce a cool piece, you know? And I had to go out there and do it myself. I just had to go out there, find the time, do stuff after work, late nights, produce something on my own, and then go out there and show it, show it to the right people. And I think a lot of that has to happen with us black and brown filmmakers who aren't getting the opportunities and aren't meeting the right people. It's like, you gotta find the, you know, you know that you're talented, you know you have stories that you wanna tell, you gotta go out there and tell them as best as you can, let your talent shine through and try your damnest to get it out to the right people. And there are devices out there now, there are platforms out there now that will, that people are looking at, you know, whether that be Instagram, whether that be TikTok, whether that be Vimeo, Whatever it is, there are platforms now that exist that didn't exist when I was coming up in the game. Those platforms now exist that you can be found. And I just think you also have to 
work on your network too. You know, you got to network like a mug. You have to get out there and try to meet people and be a good person and come out there authentically and be willing to learn, be willing to listen to people and do those things and stay persistent. It's not going to be easy. You got to stay persistent and get at this thing. You know, screenwriters, when they, then, you know, the first screen, the first uh, screenplay that they've written is not the one that's going to sell, right? You've heard screenwriters out there like 10, 15 years before they get a, their first piece out there. Same thing here. It's going to take some time. You got to be persistent. Good advice. Definitely. A common theme we've had in this show is hard work. It doesn't yeah, get much straightforward than that. Yeah, it's not easy, man. You know, it's it's not for the faint at heart. And if you feel like, you, you know, you want something easy, then this ain't it. Do you prefer documentaries with voiceover or sound bites only? Ooh, sound bites only, baby. Sound bites only. And I'm like, if I can eliminate the interviews totally and then just do straight verite, then, <laughs> then, then I'm in it, man. Then I'm in. Because that... <laughs> For me, that that kind of experience truly puts me into what's going on, you know? So if I can do that, if I'm watching that kind of documentary, if I'm producing that kind of documentary, then I, I know I've got something. That's something that I know that I'll sit there and, and watch because I got the full investment. I'm getting you to lean into the material, you know? Mm. You got voiceover, sometimes you're not leaning in, you know what I mean? I love that. Unless you get your boy Aaron Cohen to write it. Well, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, exactly. I have something to say. Kevin is the only person that I've known that has rewritten Aaron Cohen's. Oh, word? I will say that. Yes, I will say that. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin is the only person that I've known to take Aaron Cohen's paragraph, make it about font four or six, very small so you can't read it, and then he'll write his own. I won't say poetry, but he'll write his own prose. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the truth. <laughs> He's not denying it. So I'm going to move yeah. you to the You can have dinner with one filmmaker. Who is it, Kev? <laughs> God, I'm going to say two people real quick, okay? I'll say Denzel Washington, right? Because I think the dude is just a master. He's a master not only in just what he does craft-wise, but in life, too. So I think it would just be, I'd just be soaking in the knowledge. The second would be Christopher Nolan. I love Christopher Nolan's movies, but I would sit there and ask him, dude, what the fuck was Tenet about? Because <laughs> I don't get it, man. I love your stuff, but you, know, I, 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 you lost me on, bro. <laughs> no, but I love Christopher Nolan. And he's another dude that I would just like dive into craft about for sure. Favorite sports doc? Oh, well, it's probably Hoop Dreams, right? Should I say one that's not Hoop Dreams? Yeah, not Hoop Dreams. Oh, man, dude. Oh, man. There's so many great sports docs. I, I can't remember the name of this one that I just watched, too. Maybe you guys will remember what the name of it is. But it's about Christian Dawkins, the guy who was involved with all the uh, the college coaches. Oh, and, and the, um, oh the scandal? Yeah, yeah scandal. the scandal. Call like the scheme or something. I think it's called the scheme. I think. Mm -hmm. Ah, it's terrible. I'm, uh, I apologize, but that's a great documentary. Great documentary. Uh, I, I really enjoyed that. All voiceover, just the people talking to you, telling you about what was going down. Have some incredible, like wiretapped audio in it. These coaches out here cheating, bro. All these coaches out here cheating. 
<laughs> that's what I got away from it. That's that's my takeaway. All the coaches out here cheating. <laughs> oh yeah. Everybody's getting paid. Yep. The, the scheme. That was it. The scheme. The scheme. Thank you. Okay. Cool. Cool. Yes. 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 For me, Kevin, this is my last question. How do you, and it's kind of a two-parter, how do you determine what projects you're going to work on? And for you, what is that big project or that dream project that you're hoping to work on? I think what determines what I want to work on is what moves my heart, where it doesn't feel like work, where I'm excited every day to approach the story and what's happening in, in a, either a person's life or, you know, following whatever it is that I'm following in, that, in, in the story, whatever, whatever it entails. It's just got to motivate me, you know, it's got to motivate me to, it doesn't feel like it's, it's a gig, you know, there's a difference between doing a gig, right. And then doing something that you love. And so I always want to go after the projects that I love to do because it doesn't feel like work. And so how do you identify that? You just kind of know, you're just like, okay, when, when something comes up in the story or you're getting a call about it, or you're reading something about it. Does it feel like, does it feel like a chore, or is it something like this is this is getting me excited about the story at hand? You know, and that's kind of how I determine what I want to, what I want to do next, and everything. And then the 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 project that I'm looking forward to do. I don't know if it's there's like this ultimate goal of something that I must do. It's really like it's the next one. What's the next piece that I'm gonna that I, that that's out there for me that's gonna motivate me again? That's gonna make me feel like I'm really excited and gets my heart beating, and I can't wait to share this story with other people because I feel like it's gonna be something that's gonna really inspire them or motivate them to do X, Y, and Z, or have them think about an issue in a different way than what they're previously accustomed to. That's what I'm looking forward to. No doubt. Last question for me. Who's one person you'd like to hear on this podcast? You know, uh, man, one, one person who's done a lot of great sports documentaries um, that I think would be, that I'd love to hear about his craft and how he dives into stuff would be Jonathan Hawk. He might be somebody that would be interesting to, to kind of get, I mean, because the guy has done a lot. And he'd be somebody who I think, I myself as a filmmaker could glean, glean some information from and just some knowledge from. And I'm sure he's got tons of great anecdotes about all the things that he's done in his line of work. So definitely, I think he's definitely on our list and we want to have him among others, uh, great filmmakers out there. Kevin, we appreciate your time. Uh, how how can the people out there reach you if they are looking for advice or want to reach out to, to get some not life lessons but some lessons from you? For sure, yeah, I'm on I'm on Twitter at Kevin Shaw twenty three. Same handle for my Instagram at Kevin Shaw twenty three. Website www.kevinshaw.com. There's a little page there you can info page. You can send me an email. Uh, end up getting it but yeah hey it was great talking to you both man i really really enjoy uh diving in and talking shop you know with you two you've been good i, I did too kev it's nice to hear from you and, and you have a lot of wisdom man so i think it's good that we're able to have this podcast and let you share it with the people well i appreciate that i appreciate that thanks for inviting me 
Absolutely. And we are wrapped. A big thank you to Kevin Shaw on sharing his expertise and knowledge in the documentary space. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. And if you do, we will give you a shout out as one of our MVP listeners. We'll be back next week with another great episode of Beyond the Lens. And that's a wrap.